Hey guys, Justin Fall here with a quick message. The Fourth Watch Radio Network is always blessed to be able to bring you new episodes each week free of charge, and we firmly believe that there is no price that can be put on the gospel. With that said, I want to ask each of you to pray about helping support this ministry, whether it be on a monthly basis, a one-time gift, or however you're led by the Lord. Your financial support, regardless of the amount, will help continue the broadcast, as well as reach many people around the world with the gospel. I sincerely ask that you prayerfully consider helping us as we face the upcoming financial needs. All gifts, regardless of size, are needed and much appreciated. If you're willing and able, you can send your support via PayPal using the donate button on fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4, T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O dot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T dot com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. The donate button has been fixed and it's now working properly. I truly thank you and I pray for each one of you that you're truly blessed through this ministry. to the fourth watch with justin fall on the fourth watch radio network i hope everyone's having a blessed week tonight is going to be a special broadcast exploring the shocking demonic events that fell upon a family near harrisville rhode island and it was made into a box office hit film tonight we get the real story directly from the mouth of the eldest daughter who actually lived this nightmare We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network, I call this episode The Real Life Conjuring with special guest Andrea Perrin. The family known as the Perrins were a large family of seven, five of which were young girls. And they experienced an extremely traumatizing series of demonic events, all in their historic farmhouse near Harrisville, Rhode Island, back in the 70s. Ed and Lorraine Warren, a famous team of paranormal researchers, came onto the scene to try to help. But things instantly went from bad to worse upon their involvement. With over 10,000 investigations under their belts and much acclamation to their work, the Warrens still fell short in helping the Perrin family because they weren't using a biblical approach to dealing with demons. After many strange attacks and apparitions, the family was convinced that they were dealing with souls of dead people. Of course, I believe that they're all demons with no exceptions based on the Bible. But these manifestations included female apparitions with broken necks, old men, colonial-style characters, and even a little boy. The house was the location of many deaths and even suicides by hanging over the years. Much of the events have been publicly blamed on a demon witch by the name of Bathsheba, who was accused of sacrificing a young boy in order to make a pact with the devil. Of course, as Christians, we would never blame a dead person's soul for ongoing ghostly events. But interestingly, the land surrounding this house, or we'll just say the territory, 
is historically home to many strange and unexplained events dating back even to the Nitmuk Indians. Now, as things escalated with the Perrin family, the Warrens came in with a priest and a medium in order to hold a seance. And at that point, things really hit the fan. In 2013, there was a movie made to tell the story. Over 30 years later, the movie was called The Conjuring. Tonight, we'll be digging into the story deeper than the movie did, and we'll be hearing the eyewitness accounts of Andrea Perrin, the eldest daughter. Now, I need to give a quick disclaimer before we get started. Andrea has agreed to come on the fourth watch, although she doesn't take a biblical view of these events. She and I do not agree on theology or religious practices. Now, I usually don't have guests on that don't follow Christianity in the Bible. But this is a special broadcast in order to share her story, which I believe is a very important story to tell. There were some poor choices that were made in the midst of these events we're going to hear about tonight. And that rendered a bad situation worse, as you'll see. Andrea has been very kind in agreeing to be my guest, and she knows exactly where I stand and what I believe, as she and I have had this discussion prior to doing the show. So now, without any further ado, let's go ahead and go to the line with Andrea Perrin. Andrea, welcome to the Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? I'm I'm marvelous. I'm just great, Justin. Thank you so much for inviting me. You really are a, a, a stellar influence in the community um and i have great admiration for your work and your innate intellect your approach to everything i'm really looking forward to this tonight dear absolutely and andrea i have to just go ahead and say thank you so much um when i started to do some research uh, as to a movie that i saw the conjuring when i'm watching this movie i just i remember thinking this stuff is so real And I knew it was real because I've got almost 12 years of paranormal research. And I know that's not a lifetime, but I've really done a lot of digging. I've had experiences myself. And I knew that there was reality to this movie. And I started to dig a little bit and I found out more about you. And I and I found out that you had kind of uh, officially been deemed the spokesperson uh, of the real life story behind the movie. And we can talk about that a little bit later uh, if we get to that point. But I, I wanted to reach out to you because I felt like your story was one that people needed to hear. I realized that, that you and I are going to have some theological differences uh, when it comes down to certain aspects of everything that took place. Um, and that's not why we're here tonight. I just want to get that out for, for all the folks listening. We are here to talk about your story, what happened. And Andrea, your story is one that others are experiencing on a daily basis all throughout the world. We're dealing with a spiritual war, but the bottom line is you're going to be hearing the story right from the person who experienced it. Um, now, The Conjuring was based on your real life experience, although Hollywood actually watered the story down quite a bit because it was too much to put on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's usually not the case. Usually they want to puff things up uh, because yeah. they don't have real stories. So, uh, But with your situation, that's not the case. So what were some things that you can tell us um, what happened with dealing with Hollywood and having to remove things from the movie? Well, the way that it went was this. Uh, everybody at New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers was absolutely wonderful um, to work with. Uh, and I got to consult on the film. Uh, they consulted with every member of my family. Uh, they tried their best to get it right, as authentic as possible. That's what James Wan wanted. That's what um, everybody involved wanted. 
Uh, but the film is based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. When they got a hold of Lorraine's case files, Ed, of course, has passed away. Um, and they read that. And then they read what I gave them. Volume one was already in the public domain. I gave them access to volume two. I gave them a detailed timeline of events that was three pages long, handwritten in the tiniest script that you could imagine and still be legible because there was that much to tell. Uh, I gave them 75 pages written in treatment to use as, as they pleased. And when they read the real story and got a grip on what actually happened and then realized that the five or six visits total that uh, the Warrens had with the parents barely scratched the surface and in some ways was probably a little misdirected, they had a real dilemma on their hands because they had to decide exactly how they were going to tell this story and um, and tell it honestly to the extent that they could uh, without running people right out of the theater. Um, you're very correct in your assumption that Hollywood generally does everything that it can to um, uh, hyperbolize, to uh, exaggerate uh, stories because they don't have much to work with in, um, in the beginning. But in this case, it was quite the opposite. They toned it down and diluted it in some ways to the extent that it was unrecognizable to our story in terms of its depth and breadth. Uh, it made it look like we lived there for a few weeks. The Warrens moved in, solved everything, rescued my mother, and we all had a group hug on the front lawn. And nothing could have been further from the truth. What actually happened is that my mother never sought out any help because she didn't even understand what was going on in the house. We were, at the time that the Warrens came into our lives, learning to live with it and hoping for the best hoping that the worst of the manifestations were over and that we could go on and share space, you know, relatively peacefully. Um, and then one day, uh, Keith Johnson and his brother, uh, Carl, and their group from Rhode Island College showed up in a van on our front lawn in our driveway. And my mother thought they were friends of ours from school. We didn't know who they were. Um, Keith told my mom, you know, that he was responding to her invitation to come to the house. And my mother said, I never called anybody. I never called anybody to come help us. How did you even know who I was or how to get here? You know, I, I mean, it was it was a it was really a mind blowing moment, you know, for her and for him. And and we realized subsequently that the spirit that was working through my mother and attempting to take my mother over is um, most likely the one that made the call and right through my mother. And my mother has no memory of it because my mother wasn't the one functioning in that role at that moment uh, in the same way that my sister Christine will never be able to reconcile the fact that something that sounded like my mother, our mother, picked her up off of a bed and laid her down into a trunk and closed the lid that had no latch, no lock to it, but would not open when Christine was fighting for her life to get out of it. Wow. Um, Christine to this day cannot, cannot reconcile 
the fact that while that experience was happening to her two rooms away from the kitchen uh, in my mother's bedroom, while that was happening to her, and she was literally being levitated out of bed and not allowed to open her own eyes as a child, as a, you know, a, an 11 year old or a 10 year old. Um, she, my mother was in the kitchen um, singing James Taylor songs and making tuna sandwiches with us, with all of us. My mother is not the one that said, get in the box, Chris, go to the box. My mother never called the antique trunk the box ever. She called it the antique trunk. Now, I, I have to say, this is this is mind-blowing, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I have to interject something here. Uh, this is this is really a, a common type scenario uh, with with heavily, we'll just say with with powerful demons. Um, yeah. They can appear and, and and appear to be a physical manifestation of another human being, and they're liars. They will obviously this thing was, was appearing to be your mother and trying to convince your sister that she was your mother. Um, this this happens all the time. I mean, this is I just want to throw that out there that this is this is a telltale sign. I mean, when we see this we know what we're dealing with yeah yeah i mean and and really justin i I don't know how to say this to you but i mean i feel like i just scratched the surface um with one fingernail down a strip of sand on a beach that's how much happened over the course of that 10 years i mean as soon as we moved in the house the first thing that happened in the middle of a snowstorm, swirling ice crystals everywhere. And it was it was nuts. It was January 11th, 1971. And we moved in in the middle of a snowstorm. And my father opened up the back of the van and he handed me a uh, box and and said, take this to your mom in the kitchen. And I went in through the parlor door. I took a hard right into the dining room. And there was Mr. Kenyon, who had sold us the house, who was still there, moving out the last of his belongings, packing the last of what he had in the china cabinet in the dining room. Um, and he was standing at the table. He looked up. He smiled. Uh, we said good morning. And there was another man standing over in the corner near the door near the front foyer. And he was very oddly dressed. And I thought, where have we moved into that people dress like this? I remember thinking, I've never seen clothes like that before. Um, but, you know, I was 12 years old and there were as a caravan of people and chaos everywhere and coming and going. And I walked past this gentleman who appeared absolutely solid. I could have touched him. Absolutely solid. I looked up into his face. I said, good morning, sir. He looked right through me like I was the ghost. I didn't exist. Um, and I just kept walking and I went into the, into the kitchen. He was focused entirely on Mr. Kenyon. He was watching him, not me. Like I wasn't there. And, um, I said, mom, who's the man with Mr. Kenyon? She said, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon. His son's on the way. I'll be here in about 20 minutes or something like that. And then, um, my sister, Christine walked into the kitchen with a box that dad had given her to take to mom in the kitchen. And, um, of course, the kitchen got packed last, you know, so <laughs> it came off first. And um, Chris said, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? And mom's like, what are you talking about? You know, there's his son's on the way. He's not here yet. And it, and it was she just blew it off. And then Cindy came in and said, there's uh, that man with Mr. Kenyon's dressed funny. And then Nancy came up right behind her and she said he just disappeared. Mm. And that was within five 
minutes of us moving into this farmhouse that we thought was just, you know, wow, we're moving into one of the original colonial farmhouses uh, in the country. I mean, it's, you know, this house was finished as it is in 1736. It was built for years. You know, we don't even know when they actually started digging the foundation, probably sometime in the 1600s. It was deeded in 1680. The parcel of land was deeded in 1680. So, uh, you know, who knows when they actually began the farmhouse that they eventually built onto and built onto. There are inside walls in that house that have outside windows on them between bedrooms because it was an outside <laughs> wall at one time uh, that they never, you know, when they built on, they never enclosed. They left the window. Uh, you know, it's a it's a fascinating, fascinating structure. But I frequently describe it as a um, a portal disguised, cleverly disguised as a farmhouse. Uh, it really is um, a multidimensional place, and it's not just the house. It's the land. It's the property. It's the barn. It's it's everything about it. It's the river. It's everything. The old uh, cellar hole in the back, the old well in the back. There is spiritual activity all over that property. So as soon as you guys get there, not even five minutes into the new house, the kids are seeing this man, this entity uh, and, and you didn't know it was an entity. You thought it was an actual man. He was out of place. He was dressed odd. He's focused on Mr. Canyon, the previous owner. And the adults don't see this thing. Only only you you girls saw this. Yeah, my mom, well, my mom never even went into the room. But at one point, my dad walked in to see what kind of progress we were making. And he was standing not three feet away from him. And there he was. But at that point, he was translucent. And I thought that's why dad couldn't see him. Dad didn't have any, uh, he did not discern this apparition in any way. And neither did Mr. Kenyon, but the children did. Four of the five of us saw him. How did things start to escalate from that point? Like, what are some of the things that started to progress as, as you guys got settled into the house? Well, within uh, a couple or a few nights of moving into the house, um, and we had been to the house uh, a number of times prior to actually owning it and moving in. And none of us, my parents included, uh, had any kind of supernatural manifestation occur in their presence. Uh, and we were all over that property. It's as if they were waiting for us to arrive and waiting for us to be in a situation where we couldn't leave um, before they showed themselves which I think is, is a very interesting distinction to draw. And I think that there's some merit in, in um, exploring that concept further. It felt like a spiritual conspiracy in that respect, uh, almost like if they had shown themselves prior to our arrival, my parents would have reneged on the deal, would have backed out and said, no, we're not buying a haunted house. Uh, but that wasn't even on the radar for our family. And a few nights into being in the house, Cindy came from the, the middle bedroom and came and crawled into bed with me, asked if she could sleep with me. And I said, of course, I pulled back the quilt and let her in. And she said, I, I'm scared. I hear voices in my room. And my immediate thought was Christine's talking in her sleep again. She's just noted for that. And she said, no, it's not Chris. It's a lot of voices. They're all talking at once. They're all saying exactly the same thing at the same time. I said, what are they saying? And she said, there are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall over and over and over and over. And she said it didn't matter if she put the pillow over her head. They would get louder. 
if she put the quilt over her head, over, over the pillow, and, and shoved it against her ears. It didn't matter. It would be louder and louder. She said, I can't believe everybody in the house doesn't hear it. She was seven years old. She was scared by what was happening to her. There was absolutely no reason not to believe her. She would have swallowed her own tongue before she lied. That's how we were all raised, all raised to be honest and, and forth, forthright, even if the news that we had to impart wasn't such great news. It would be received by our parents in a fair way. And that, you know, that's how we were raised. Um, so what were some of the things that happened leading up to that point? Well, my mother um, was attacked in the barn with a hand side, a, a very sharp instrument used for baling hay, um, came flying down from about 40 feet above her head, uh, twirling like uh, like a boomerang, um, making the noise like a bird trapped in the barn, uh, was spinning so quickly she couldn't even make out what it was, and it came slicing down across her neck, and had she not had my father's leather bomber jacket on, uh, we might have lost her. Um, it was sharp enough to decapitate her, and she had about four layers of clothing on. It was frigid. Uh, and she was in, you know, the frigid barn. She had uh, uh, an undershirt, a T-shirt, a turtleneck, a, a flannel shirt. Uh, and then she had my father's leather jacket on. And when it sliced across her neck, it split the jacket wide open. So that was the barrier that kept her from being severely injured. So your mom was a was a target from the beginning. Right from the beginning. Uh, and it wasn't for some time that we realized there was a spirit, a female spirit in that house who felt very threatened by her presence there and um, really told her to get out over and over and over again. And when she did not comply, whatever that powerful spirit was, started trying to claim her from within. And that's what the Warrens perceived to be oppression. Uh, and they could have very well have been right about that. In that first year and a half, there were numerous incidents, most of them um, that were in any way threatening or harmful, were happening to my mother. Um, she was beaten very badly around the head and neck with a, a heavy coat hanger in the warm room of the bathroom. We all saw that happen. Uh, when we threw open the door in response to her screams, uh, it fell to the floor. Uh, it was in, in midair. Uh, apparently unattached to any hand that was using it to to bruise her beyond belief. Um, and um, that one, our neighbor was at the house and she never came back. She what after what she saw that day, she never came back to the house. Uh, and she banned her kids from coming in the house, um, which were our playmates. Uh, and then. After that, my mom decided that she was freezing to death in the house, and we had a woodshed full of seasoned wood, so she pried open the face of the fireplace in the parlor, and in so doing, uh, really unleashed a boatload of new activity. Uh, and in fact, it was at the end of the first day that she began that project that she was attacked in the warm room of the bathroom where the center chimney, the big, big center chimney used to be that had been removed and the, the smaller one put in. So uh, that was the vent for the furnace and that room was 
very warm, as was the closet right above it, which was April's play space where she used to hang out with Oliver. So this was totally boarded up. I mean, it was this thing was sealed off by somebody in time past. Uh, yeah, it was. And uh, even Mr. Kenyon didn't remember when it had been sealed. Um, and my mother asked him, you know, he came for visits. And when she and when she'd say to him, uh, Earl, I hear strange noises in the house. He would just wink at her and say swallows in the chimney, my dear. Uh, he didn't want to. The day that we moved in, he took my dad for a walk outside and said, Roger, for the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. And that was the only forewarning that our family received. And my father misinterpreted it. He thought it's because he had five little girls upstairs in a in a new house to them in a big vacuumous dark house. And with the bathroom being on the first floor, the only way to keep his kids from falling down the stairs at night would be to leave the house adequately lighted for their coming and going. And um, and what Mr. Kenyon was actually saying is if you want to keep the spirits at bay, keep the lights on at night. Uh, we found out subsequently from numerous people that lived in the area that there was never a time in all the many, many decades that Mr. and Mrs. Kenyon lived in that house, that there was never a time that uh, the light, every light in the house wasn't left on all night long. So we're talking about a long history here of, of tons of activity going on in this place. Uh, obviously, the, having the lights on, I mean, I, I look at that as, a, as kind of a fable because really when these things manifest, they're going to manifest without whether the lights are on or off. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, most of the manifestations that occurred in the house occurred during the daytime, not at night. So now your mother, she was kind of taking on some household projects, just like a, just like a woman would do. You move into a new house and you're trying to make the best use of your time. She goes in to open up this chimney that, that was clearly boarded off or sealed up. And that's when a lot of attacks started happening inside the main house. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, the beating occurred uh, almost immediately. Um, in, well, virtually the same day that she either started or finished the project. We can't remember which, but she was right involved with it. And it was a big project to open that fireplace up. Uh, the chimney was packed with debris and you know, it had years and years of bird's nests in it. And it was a mess. Um, but uh, it was that was when the uh, pantry door uh, there were three pantries in the house, two off of the kitchen and one off the parlor um, that we used as a laundry room. Uh, it had a washer dryer hookup in it that had, you know, obviously been added later when there was plumbing. And um, that door, after mom opened up the fireplace, that door refused to stay closed. It would open at will uh, regularly. Um, it would open. And, you know, this was the old wrought iron uh, what they call the, the church style latch, you know, one goes into the uh, one slides into the other and you have to really lift those things to open a door. And every single one of the latches in that house on 24 doors in that house all were different and they all made a different sound. Um, and uh, I mean, we could you could hear it when that click, you know, when that door was I mean, we would just look at each other like the pantry door just opened. And there was something about it that when mom disturbed the house and opened up that fireplace, 
uh, it opened the house up to all kinds of activity. And in fact, many, many incidents, as you read the books, you'll understand that many incidents occurred right on the hearthstone to that fireplace. Um, and for some reason, that seemed to be the central vortex in the house. I mean, are we dealing with Indian, you know, possibly yes. sacred Indian land? Yes. Yep. And if there's uh, anything in terms of dark spirits or dark entities that are attached to that uh, property, I think that, you know, the house is just a, a natural byproduct of that only because it was built on that land. The Nipmuc Indian tribe, that was Nipmuc land. Uh, that was tribal land prior to the deal that Roger Williams struck with the Indians to, you know, basically share the space. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, we'll never know, Justin, we'll never know what things occurred on that property um, that could have in any way drawn uh, that kind of negative energy to it. But I will tell you that there were too many deaths that occurred there, too many uh, in on and around the property, deaths, uh, even death by suicide. There were too many things that happened on that property uh, over the course of its existence. There's been uh, a lot of speculation, and frankly, that's all that we can do. But in the, in the grand scope of things, uh, I have always wondered if what was um, so uh, threatened by my mother's existence um, and the one that was going after my mother was not Bathsheba Sherman. I'm not saying that Bathsheba was, you know, the nicest, most amenable person on the planet. Uh, she had a terrible reputation. And early in her youth, there was uh, accusations. Uh, there were accusations flying about her claiming the life of a child you know, in trade with the devil himself for eternal youth and beauty. You know, people were calling her a witch uh, and alluding to the fact that she had murdered this baby in her care. And when there was an inquest, the judge said, there's no evidence here that this young lady did anything to hurt this baby. This looks like a terrible accident to me. No, they did have the corpse of the baby, and there were some some odd circumstances around the, the baby's corpse, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yeah, it had a needle impaled at the base of its skull. No, and, and I, that, that doesn't sound like an accident to me. No, that doesn't sound like an accident. But you're not discounting the fact that she could she could have been a witch. I know, but there's no proof anywhere. Do you think it's possible that these women that hung themselves in the house, that they were so demonized that they couldn't handle it anymore and they just ended their lives? There, that's been speculated. So your mom is doing the remodeling. She opens up this, this fireplace that was covered and concealed. Uh, now we have this entity that's appearing as a, you know, a broken necked female that hung herself and she's getting physically abusive with your mom. She's speaking weird, uh, weird dialect and weird, you know, phrases to your mom. Um, shortly thereafter on the timeline, is it, is it about that time that your dad was, uh, experiencing a manifestation of a female as well? The two major manifestations that happened in my parents' bedroom, my father was, for all intents and purposes, unconscious, rendered unconscious uh, and um, uh, unresponsive uh, during both of them to the extent that my mother thought that he was dead and she was next and that her children were going to die as well. Uh, both of them were horrifying experiences for her, uh, one worse than the other because the second one was uh, – 
with a manifestation of fire. But there were uh, several manifestations of fire in the house. Uh, my mother was taunted and threatened with fire, which is truly a mother's greatest fear, especially in a 250-year-old tinderbox clapboard house. Um, but uh, they were actually uh, manifestations that were uh, visually, I don't know if, if they were occurring uh, extra-dimensionally, I don't know what, but there was never any, even when sparks were flying uh, around the house, there was never any sign of it after the manifestation ended. Uh, no burn marks on the quilts or, or the curtains or, or anything like that. And a couple of these events were quite big um, and, and had uh, a lot of fire attached to them. Uh, my mother at one point was rendered unconscious and fell and her feet fell into the fireplace and my father saved her. It's like her body was thrown, kicked, pushed into the fireplace and her flippers caught on fire on her feet. There's actually a story almost identical to that in the Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, uh, but there was a, a boy that was demon possessed, it says, and he would the demon would cause him to, you know, go into an epileptic fit and fall into the fire and he kept getting burned. So it, it's kind of an interesting correlation. I th That was actually an aspect of your story that I had never heard before. Uh, yeah, there are probably a lot of things that you'll see correlations and, um, you know, the, the Catholic Church, uh, for all intents and purposes, turned its back on our family, did not embrace our story in any way, did not offer to help us in any way. And in fact, the priest in our parish approached my father and asked him if he would kindly take his family and worship elsewhere. Wow. So we broke away from the Catholic Church when I think I was maybe 13 We'd only lived in the house about a year or so, and word was starting to get around about some of the things that were happening there. So everyone, the priests and, and the parishioners, they were well aware of what y'all were dealing with. Yeah. And they yeah. didn't want to get they involved. Were, nope. They were afraid. They were afraid. And so we come back full circle to fear. Now, is there, a, uh, if I remember correctly, there was a situation where your your dad was, was it in a basement or a cellar? Uh, he was uh, routinely touched when he went down into the cellar um, and she would just stroke across the definitely female and would stroke across his shoulders or down the back of his neck, uh, down the middle of his back, uh, like down his spine and would then kind of embrace and put her arm around him. Now, let's let's move into the Warrens. The Warrens enter the scene. From that point on, everything that happened that Mrs. Warren considered negative was blamed on Bathsheba, the demon witch. Um, and I don't think that that was accurate. Uh, Mrs. Warren is clearly aware that she and Ed were in over their heads when they walked across our threshold. Um, and it wasn't that they were trying to exploit us. I don't believe that. Others do. But I don't believe um, you know, I met both of these people. I was 15 years old, knew them for a year and a half, met them a number of times, spent a number of hours in their company. Um, and I don't think that they were trying to exploit us. I think that they really believed what they believed and they were trying to help us. Um, but there was no helping us. There was no helping us. They came in with some unorthodox practices and they made things worse. 
They did, and, and I don't think that they meant to. I don't think that they wanted to have what happened that night happen. Um, and, and they did misrepresent their visit that night. They asked uh, early in the afternoon. Uh, Lorraine called my mother and, and said, you know, Ed and I would like to come by the house tonight. My mother was very reluctant because my father was due home from an extended road trip, and he would be tired, and the last thing that he would want to see are Mr. and Mrs. Warren. And she knew that. And Lorraine insisted, said that they were at a, at a point of critical mass um, with my mother, that my mother did not even sound like my mother, the woman that she had met a year and a half before. Um, and there is some evidence to substantiate that. I can only share that much. I know and have witnesses to the effect that my mother was changing dramatically and that there was reason for the Warrens, who I think genuinely cared about our family, to want to intervene on her behalf and on behalf of our family. But they did it surreptitiously by bringing a, a priest and a medium and a media crew, uh, audio, visual, camera, cinematographers, uh, you know, a little, a little miniature army uh, with them um, to defeat whatever it was that they perceived was trying to grab a hold of my mother. My father got so angry that my mother shut down so for all intents and purposes, the night of the seance, she was the weakest link. It took my father, it took Ed Warren about an hour or more to convince my father with the help of the priest that was present to let it go forward. Meanwhile, the medium, Mary Pastorella, was trying to work with my mother, who was going deeper and deeper, almost into a catatonic state because she could feel the tension, the anxiety brewing around my father and and was just afraid that things were going to get out of hand. She doesn't have any memory of that day, that night. Um, when they showed up, my father was absolutely livid. My mother tried to get us out of the house as fast as she could because she had a feeling things were going to go downhill. And uh, only one of the five of us had a girlfriend to go spend the night with that was available. And the other four of us stayed in the house. Uh, which uh, in itself um, is inexcusable that four children were uh, forced to bear witness to what happened in our house that night, even though we were all told to stay upstairs, not to come downstairs. Uh, three of the four of us disobeyed a direct order. Um, Christine heard everything in her bed laying right above what was happening. Uh, in the bedroom centered right over where the dining room table was, where this all occurred. Nothing happened in the cellar except that the cinematographers went down with their state-of-the-art, you know, uber-huge cameras and set them up uh, all along the length of 200 feet of cellar, dirt floor cellar. And when they went back by order of my father and Mrs. Warren at the end of this event to collect their camera equipment, it was in hundreds, if not thousands of pieces all over the cellar, and no one had been down there. No mortal soul went down those stairs during the event, and wow. something smashed their equipment to pieces. Two grown men, two professional cinematographers came up those cellar stairs weeping for the loss of their equipment, went outside, put themselves in the van, and never came back in the house. Can you paint the picture for everybody? What took place that night? Ed had to convince my father to let it go forward. The priest got involved. Things got heated verbally. 
uh, between the three of them. Meanwhile, my mother was shutting down, shutting down, shutting down. Uh, Ed told us to go away. Uh, the children, go upstairs, go put yourselves in your rooms, close your doors, put your stereos on, tune all of this out. Mary Pastorella was sitting down on the floor on her knees, looking up into my mother's face, looking over at Lorraine, saying, we have to do this now, we need to do this now, we've got to do this now. Lorraine at one point turned and targeted my father and said, if you really love your wife, you will let us save her which sent him over the moon for her to question his affection or devotion to my mother. Um, and, you know, saying that it's an all or nothing proposition, making a unilateral decision that the only way to save her is to go forward with a seance that he thought could be very damaging and that, you know, he didn't believe in any of the hocus pocus anyway, um, but could be psychologically damaging to her. That was his take on it. Um, even though he did not say so uh, at the at that moment, he did speak of it subsequently for years afterwards that he thought, you know, that was the biggest risk to her is that it would do psychological damage to her and that she was already in a vulnerable state, um, you know, depressed and, and not herself. And um, and so finally they convinced him and then had to convince him to come be in the room to participate. He wanted nothing to do with it. Um, when uh, he finally agreed and came into the room, then he didn't want to hold hands with anybody and just, you know, fully removed himself physically um, and watched from a distance. And at that point, the negative energy in the house was absolutely palpable. You could taste it. It's like it was seething out of every pore of his body. It was feeding the beast. No question in my mind about it. None. And Mary Pastorella started doing her incantation, her conjuring of the spirits. And in my opinion, my humble opinion, she committed what I consider to be uh, spiritual malpractice. Uh, you do not throw wide open the doors to the netherworld. And that's what she did. Uh, you know, and I know that when you are touched by spirit, it's a door that can never be closed again. You can pretend that it doesn't exist and you can you know, turn your back on it. But eventually you will be tapped on the shoulder. And what she did was literally invite all the spirits in the house to come and identify themselves uh, at that point, the table began to lift up. There were candles on the table. Uh, the lights were down. My sister Cindy and I were peering through uh, a crack in a door from the front foyer into the dining room so we could see pretty much everything. It was so dark, nobody noticed that the door was partially open, and we were standing on the other side of it. Um, and the table began to lift. This was a, at least a 200-pound rock maple uh, solid table that began to lift up and lift up. And when it came down, it was like the hand of God slammed it back down onto the floor. There are still four impressions in the wood of the floor of that farmhouse to this day where that table hit the floor when it came back down. Um, and then something came into my mother and she began to make sounds that were horrific and blood curdling uh, as if she was in agony. Um, and her facial expressions were distorted and twisted. Her body, her arms, her fingers, everything was distorted and twisted. 
her body was being wound up into a little ball uh, to the extent that you would expect to hear bones breaking. Human bodies do not take that form, uh, nor can they be pressed into that form without severe damage being done to them. Um, and she began to speak in a language that is not present on this planet to, at this moment uh, and in a voice that was clearly obviously not her own. Uh, threats were issued uh, in a language that was undiscernible. It was not Latin. It was not Greek. It was not one of the ancient languages that we're familiar with. It was something far more ancient than that. Um, and it uh, then began to levitate her chair. And by the time she was two or three feet off the ground, in the fraction of the split of a second, she was from the middle of the dining room to the middle of the parlor, 20 feet away. And everyone present in that house that night heard her skull hit the floor while she was still in the chair that hit the floor. And everyone in that house expected that she had died from the impact. You know, and this um, this goes right back to, and I actually like the terminology that you use, spiritual malpractice. Um, you know, people get, they start experiencing these types of things and they say, okay, we got to bring in an expert and they bring in a medium. Um, and, and obviously your dad was using his best judgment to not want the medium to get involved. Well, yeah, his gut instinct said this is not going to end well. And it didn't because when he went to rush to my mother's side, Ed tried to stop him from going to his wife. And my father turned around and punched him square in the face and took a man a third larger than him straight to the floor. You know, blood everywhere. I mean, it was ugly, Justin. There's no way to, to paint a pretty picture. You know, and The Conjuring was based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Do you think that element of that story from that night was in that case file? No, absolutely not. And, you know, I, I've, I've always warned people, you know, that there's, there's a right and a wrong way to deal with, with, you know, and I, and obviously, you know, you and I are going to differ. I'm going to, I'm going to come out and just say that I believe 110% that we're dealing with demonic activity here. Um, you know, we're dealing with, with spirits that are looking to harm people. And by bringing a medium in, this is somebody who deals with familiar spirits. We're dealing with a practice that dates back thousands of years. Uh, you know, we are told even in the Old Testament of the Bible, you know, God had told his people, do not practice this. Do not get involved with the spirits. You know, do not conjure, um, you know, mediumship, channeling. These are things that God specifically said, you know, mankind is not meant to do. And what this woman did was come in and open that portal. And your mother suffered because of this. Yeah. And not just your mother, but your family suffered. Oh, your yeah. I mean, but my mother almost paid with her life. And, you know, I, I, I use a line in the books. Um, you know, everything that happened in that particular incident, everything surrounding it is in volume two. And um, one of the lines that I use in volume two is uh, childhood trauma, the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, not did not only did we learn an awful lot about what we don't want to invite into our lives that night, uh, but our whole family paid the consequences for allowing someone else to do it. 
And so many years had gone by, and Lorraine Warren contacted your mother and said, hey, we could really make a lot of money off of this story. Um, Hollywood wants to pick it up. We could do a movie or books. And, you know, your mother absolutely shut the door in her face. Yeah, she did. And then Lorraine guilted her into uh, promising to discuss it with my father. I don't know how she even found us. I mean, because it was, you know, way before Google. Uh, and, uh, she somehow tracked us down in Georgia in 1980 after we had moved. We had been down there for several months after the farm was sold. And she said, well, you've got to at least discuss this with your husband. That's only fair. You know, and it was life changing money that she was offering through this producer. And, uh, she had a ghostwriter, which is a funny phrase. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, and my mother reluctantly agreed that she would at least uh, approach the subject with my father. And that night in the basement of our new house in Cherokee County, Georgia, my mother was attacked and brutally attacked, uh, had a, a, a solid oak door come down on top of her, dislocate her shoulder, uh, crack ribs. Uh, she got a concussion. I mean, it was awful. And um, the next day when Mrs. Warren called back, she said, the answer is no. And please, Lorraine, do not contact me again. And that was the end. So how much time had passed before you decided that you were going to take a step out and tell the story publicly? Well, we left in 1980. And uh, in August of 2007, uh, it was like a bell went off in my head and I had one job to do and that was it. Even James Wan, who was a Warren aficionado, who knew every case, had read every case study that they'd ever done, said, how did I not know about this story? How did I not know about the Perrin family? And the reason he didn't know was because when Mrs. Warren and her husband were going around to seminars, and overzealously telling a little too much about our house and where it was. And people were showing up at our door saying they heard about it at a Warren seminar. Uh, my mother confronted her and she said, we have a confidentiality agreement. Do not breach it. Do not. This story is off limits in terms of your public speaking. And, you know, so for the most part, I'm sure they switched things around and they did write about it years and years later. But, um, you know, they tried to, uh, disguise it um, as as other things, elements, tell elements of it. But, you know, they only came to the house five or six times over the course of a year and a half, Justin. We lived there 365 days a year for, for 10 years. So there were many, many things that happened in that house that the Warrens didn't even know about. Um, subsequently, we lived there another seven years after my father uh, threw them out of our house the night of the seance, uh, told everybody, get out. And he was not delicate about it. And he used some atrocious language. And he was absolutely livid that what went down in that house went down. He was terrified. And when my father gets scared, he gets angry. And when my father gets angry, you better get gone. Well, I mean, yeah, it's understandable. I mean, we have a team of people that came in and they totally stirred up. I mean, literally stirred up a hornet's nest of demonic activity. Um, I, I think the first the first learning you know experience that I think we could pull from that scenario is don't have seances. 
I mean, I mean, rule number one. Yeah. Do not have a seance disaster. That's inviting disaster. It is. You know, it, it's, it's a scary scenario and it's, it's one of those things that, that we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to be trying to communicate with spirits. Um, and, and it, I think this story right there, that, that should be a, a clear enough picture for everybody to say, okay, you know what? This is not good. Um, there is no reason that anybody should ever be trying to, uh, go through with the seance. And, you know, just for anybody who might not be aware, even using a Ouija board, um, that's technically a seance. Um, you know, and kids are doing this. Kids are playing with Ouija boards and they don't realize that they're they're literally opening up doorways uh, for these things to enter their house and even possession. I mean, obviously, there's oppression and then there's 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 possession. But still, um, that's the first thing that kind of comes to mind is that seances are not acceptable and they're dangerous. So um, I'm, I'm really glad that we can actually tell the story of the seance that took place um, as, as a learning experience. If other people can learn from this. Then it's, you know, I, I, and I don't mean to say at your expense, but it's worth it that people can learn and say, oh, you know no. what? You're right. You're absolutely right. And it's okay to say at our expense. You know, that, that was my biggest objection about the conjuring is, you know, there's idiots sitting with their feet up, throwing popcorn at the screen, laughing at what my family went through. You know, uh, what our family went through was not for their entertainment purposes. It was actually to inform them to straighten up, fly right, wake up that there are are mysteries all around us that need to be acknowledged. We didn't have an option. It was as if it explored us. You know, this has been one of those discussions tonight that's going to be unsettling to some people. I, I totally understand that. Um, but I can't thank you enough for taking your time out of your busy schedule. And I know you and I, we've been kind of playing tag for a little while trying to get this set up, but I really appreciate you uh, being willing to come on the program and share your story. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much, Andrea. You too, sweetheart. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was interesting to say the least. We can see how demons don't always seek to terrorize only Christians, which seems to be a popular view. But we see families being tormented all over the world who have no idea what's going on. And unfortunately, in this particular situation, things were not handled properly and things went south really quick. There is never an excuse to perform a seance, ladies and gentlemen. I would hope that everyone listening understands this. It's so easy for us to look at a seance and recognize it as witchcraft. And in doing that, we want to stay away from it. But tonight, I want us to explore our own lives for witchcraft practices. That's right. You heard me correctly. It's very possible that you're guilty of witchcraft and you don't even realize it. So let's investigate this with an open mind and with an open heart in light of Scripture. Tonight, we head to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is an amazing historical account that we are truly blessed to be able to study in God's Word tonight. As many of you know, Samuel was God's prophet, and he was set aside for this role before he was even born. As a matter of fact, his mother, Hannah, couldn't bear a child because God had closed up her womb. But eventually, God gave her a son after much prayer and offering, and his name was Samuel. He was dedicated to the work of God, and he even lived and grew up with Eli the priest in the house of God. And he grew up serving the Lord under Eli's care and training. But Samuel grew up to be a mighty prophet of God. And that brings us up to where we are 
in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And what we're going to see here is that Saul is the king, and he had been anointed by God. Now, this is important to understand. Even though he was anointed by God, he fell into great sin, and he began to act on his own accord, chasing after his own selfish ambitions. So this is a study that will surely help us put our own lives into perspective. So let's go ahead and dive into verse 1 of chapter 15. And again, we are in 1 Samuel. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. So right off the bat, Samuel goes to Saul. He says, I'm here to anoint you king over God's people. And so now you have to listen and obey the words of the Lord. Verse 2, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. This is powerful. God is speaking through Samuel directly to King Saul, and he's saying, I remember the Amalekites. I remember how they treated Israel. I remember how they waited to fight them. This is hardcore, okay? God doesn't forget when people rise up against his people. This is how God works. But he says, go and smite the Amalekites. Literally, he says, go and utterly destroy all that they have. Don't spare anybody. Kill the men, kill the women, kill the infants, the sucklings, the ox, the sheep, the camel, the asses. He's saying kill them all. Don't take anything. Now verse 4. And Saul gathered the people together and he numbered them and telling him, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. This is kind of interesting. We see a few things happening here. Saul says, okay, we're going to go kill the Amalekites. So he gathers up his army. He gathers all his men together. And they went to the city of Amalek. And they were waiting in the valley. But while they were there... They saw the Kenites. This is another group of people. And they could have killed the Kenites, but they showed mercy to the Kenites because the Kenites showed mercy to Israel as they left Egypt. Now verse 7, And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But... Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. This is where it all crumbles down, ladies and gentlemen. Saul and his army are right there. They're fighting the Amalekites, just like God told them to do, but God said, kill them all. Every last one of them. Kill the people, kill the animals. But what does Saul do? He takes the king of the Amalekites hostage. He keeps him alive. And we're talking about King Agag here. This is a wicked man. But Saul spares his life and takes him captive. And he doesn't destroy all the animals. Instead, he decides we're going to take some of the sheep, 
the oxen. We're going to take the fatlings. We're going to take the lambs. Pretty much all that Saul had seen that was good, he took, even though God said to destroy it all. But Saul disobeyed. He decided to take the things which he thought was good. Now, verse 10, Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned his back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. This is interesting because we see the Lord speaking prophetically to Samuel about all the things that Saul was doing. And this was before Samuel had even known what was happening. This was divine revelation of God speaking directly to Samuel. He says, Samuel, Saul is disobeying me as we speak, and it repenteth me. Now, it's interesting that we see this phrase, it repenteth me. God is saying that it repenteth him that he had made Saul king. We don't see this term show up much in scripture, but we do see it in Genesis chapter 6 verse 7 also, and God is saying that it repented him that he had made man. Why would God say this? Because God saw the wickedness had grown among the earth. The fallen angels had been infiltrating the human genome with the Nephilim, and man was so wicked, they were chasing after false gods and black magic, genetic manipulations, and God said, it repenteth me. It is a pretty serious claim to see God speaking those words. For God to repent himself? That's pretty serious. So God revealed to Samuel exactly what Saul was doing. He revealed the absolute rebellion and disobedience that was taking place. And this really grieved Samuel. It says Samuel was up all night crying. Now moving on to verse 12. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set him up a place, and has gone about and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. Now this is pretty interesting. Samuel gets to the place where Saul is supposed to be. And Saul's not there anymore. He's gone on. He's gone down to another place called Gilgal. So Samuel finally came to Saul, we see in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul and said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. This is funny. Samuel's coming here to rebuke Saul for his wickedness, and Saul's excited to see him. He says, God bless you, man of God. I have performed the commandments that the Lord has given me. And that's not really what happened. <laughs> he thought that's what was going on, but in reality, he had acted on his own accord and he disobeyed the Lord. But here comes Samuel to correct him, and Saul is excited, and he's trying to greet him with a holy welcome. Now, verse 14, Samuel says this, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Samuel says, If you're doing what God told you to do, why do I hear the sheep and the oxen screaming and wailing as they're being sacrificed? Now, verse 15, Saul responds, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. So Saul is trying to make it okay. Oh, it's okay. We're just sacrificing unto the Lord. You know, we got the best of their animals to sacrifice unto the Lord, but it's okay because we killed the rest. So the first thing we see here that sticks out to me, though, Saul said they have brought them from the Amalekites. Who is he talking about? He's saying my men. He's putting the blame on his men. He's not taking responsibility as king. He's saying they have brought the animals from the Amalekites. But it's okay, 
because we're going to sacrifice someone to the Lord. So he's putting the blame on somebody else, and he's clearly in disobedience unto the Lord because God said he should destroy everything, take nothing of their camp. And so then we get down to verse 16. Samuel says this, Stay and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And in verse 17, Samuel begins to tell Saul that God has brought him a message, that God has disclosed to him the wickedness and the disobedience that Saul has committed. This is what he said, verse 17, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribe of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel says, look, God told you what to do. He told you to kill them all. They are wicked. They are sinners. We also have historical evidence that we're dealing with Nephilim. And he says, you were supposed to destroy it all. Kill all of them. The people, the animals, destroy their whole camp. But what did you do? You took their spoil. You got greedy. You acted on your own accord. And God told me this. God told me this specifically while you were doing it. Apparently Saul had forgot that Samuel is in direct communication with the Lord. Saul got so sidetracked by his sin, by his flesh, by his ambitions, that he fell into disobedience and didn't even think twice about it. Now verse 20, And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought about Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. So, Again, he's not listening to what Samuel's saying. He keeps coming back with excuses. He's saying, no, no, I obeyed the voice of the Lord. Samuel, listen to me. I did what God told me. I went the way which God sent me, and I've brought back the king, Agag, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Again, that's not what God told him to do. God told him to destroy all of them. And then he goes on in verse 21 to say, but the people took the spoil. The people took all the things that were good so that we could make sacrifice unto God. He's going back. You see, do we do this in our lives? Do we try to justify our sin even when we are being corrected by God's word, even when we are being corrected by our brothers and sisters in Christ? We still go back and try to justify our actions. This mentality is disobedience. This mentality is rebellion. He's then blaming the sacrifice on the people. Oh, well, the people wanted to bring the animals. My men, they wanted to thank God for delivering the Amalekites into our hands. So what we're going to do is we're going to take their animals and we're going to sacrifice them unto God. Oh, and we're also going to take the nice things that they own. Oh, hey, you see that gold over there? That looks nice. Let's take it too. That's the mentality we see here. And Saul is their king. Saul stood by and allowed it. Now, whether or not the people really did initiate this, it doesn't matter because Saul is the king. He has authority over his men, but he's still pushing back saying, no, 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 Samuel, you got it all wrong. I did what God said, but did he? Now verse 22, and Samuel said, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, 
To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. This really speaks volumes. Samuel is saying God doesn't care as much about burnt offerings and sacrifice as he cares about your obedience. He says, behold, your obedience is better than sacrifice. Do we understand that, ladies and gentlemen? Do we understand that God doesn't want our offerings and our sacrifices if we're not obedient? He will not accept them. Now he continues in verse 23, rebuking Saul. He goes on deeper. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou has rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Here Saul is making sacrifice. He's with his men. They're celebrating. They're celebrating the fact that they destroyed the Amalekites. But they didn't kill the king like they were supposed to. And they took their animals to sacrifice unto the Lord. And this was in direct opposition to the commandments that God had given him. But Samuel takes it further. He goes on to explain that you are committing witchcraft because your rebellion is viewed as witchcraft unto the Lord. Rebellion is disobedience. Do we understand this? This is so important. Now, verse 24, And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Saul finally admits it. After all of this, he finally admits it. He says, finally, okay, you're right. I have sinned. I have transgressed. I have gone directly against the words of the Lord that you spoke to me. So he admitted he was a sinner. He admitted that he had disobeyed God. After Samuel went through all the gauntlet with him. And then he says, I pray, please pardon my sin and turn again with me. Now, let me explain this. It was important in these times that whoever the king was, that they were in good standings with the prophet because the prophet was there to communicate between God and the king. And so he needed Samuel to turn again with him. He needed him to go back and join sides with him so that Saul could worship the Lord. This might be hard for us to understand in modern terms, but that's pretty much what was going on. He had sinned. He didn't have the blessings of God. He didn't have the blessings of the prophet. And he says, please pardon my sin and join me again that I might worship the Lord. And this is where it gets pretty harsh. Verse 26. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. Wow. Let me sum up this scenario real quick before we move on. Saul committed a major sin. He disobeyed direct orders from God. And if you really want to go deeper, this sacrifice that he was performing, he was literally sacrificing animals that were tainted. They were cursed by God. God was not accepting it. So he was literally making a witchcraft sacrifice because it was totally done in disobedience. And this was a turning point in Saul's kingship. He continued to rebel in various ways and his disobedience eventually led to his death. Some sins actually lead unto death. First John chapter five, verse 16. 
That same passage in 1 John explains that not all sins lead unto death, as we're commanded to try and pull our brothers out of lesser sins and back into fellowship. But you see, Saul's rebellion against the Lord eventually led him to seeking after an actual witch to perform a seance, and he died because of it. But the situation at hand, Saul deliberately disobeyed God's word, chasing after his own selfish ambitions, and he actually thought that he was doing what was best. He listened to the people. He listened to the culture. It was culturally acceptable. All the people wanted it, so what does he do? He gives it to them. He allows the people to persuade him to disobey God. Now, the question that I want to bring to you, how often do you do things that are unbiblical, thinking that you're doing what's best? Maybe you've been coerced by the culture. Maybe you've been coerced by your friends. Maybe your coworkers, your classmates. They're bringing you into sin. It's still your fault, just like with Saul. It was the people who persuaded Saul to do this. And people persuade us as Christians to fall into sin. So how often are you acting unbiblically? How often are you sinning and going against God's word? While we are not called to go to battle with the Amalekites, we are given a clear set of standards and principles in which we are to live by in the word of God. You see, we are called to be obedient unto the Lord by living out his word. And the fact is, when we sin, we are rebelling against God, literally. So let's take this a little deeper. When we sin against God, we are rebelling against God. And in doing this, we are committing the same sin as witchcraft, ladies and gentlemen. Are you committing witchcraft right now in God's eyes? You might think you're living clean. You might justify what you're doing, just like Saul did. You might say, oh, it's all good, Justin. I treat people well. I pray. I do good deeds. I love God. I financially support ministries. I feed the poor. But if you're disobeying God's word... You are rebelling against God. And this means that you are committing witchcraft in God's eyes. God will not take any delight in your good works if you're being disobedient, friends. We see this clearly in the account that we've learned tonight with the behavior of King Saul. God desires our obedience, plain and simple. Now here's something that sticks out to me about obedience. If I take my dog out for a walk and I tell her to sit down, if she doesn't sit, That's disobedience. That's rebellion. Now, if I train my dog not to get on the couch and she knows better and I come home to find my couch totally ripped up into shreds, that's disobedience. That's rebellion. Now, obviously, these two scenarios are vastly different. Not sitting when I tell her to sit and then destroying my couch are not on the same level, obviously. But this really takes us right back to the idea that some sins lead to death and some sins don't. Whether your sins are subtle and small, or whether they are large and affecting other people, they are still sins, and they are rebellion unto God. And what does that mean, ladies and gentlemen? That means that they are witchcraft in God's eyes. So I ask again, are you rebelling in disobedience of any sort? Are you committing witchcraft in God's eyes? It's time for us to stop comparing ourselves to others because we can always find someone who's doing worse things than we are. We have to base our lifestyles on the word of God, not our culture, not our government, not our laws, not our friends, not even our pastors. We have to live up to the high calling of scripture if we are God's children. And this means we base our lifestyles on the word of God.
I pray that tonight you really examine your lives in light of Scripture. And by looking at disobedience as witchcraft, it really brings down the weight of the situation. And I know that this is a heavy topic, but God's Word is heavy. This life is temporary, and our focus should be on the eternal, not on the things that fade away. How will we know what God expects from us if we don't study His Word? I want to encourage you to just take a moment. Ask our Heavenly Father to reveal those areas of your life that need work. Pray for your hidden sins to be revealed. Ask for the grace to be able to correct your lifestyles and behaviors so that they are pleasing unto God. I encourage you to repent wholeheartedly about any disobedience unto God and His Word. Knowing that your disobedience is rebellion and knowing that God sees that as witchcraft should create urgency in your life to make things right with God. God is standing by to those who are truly seeking Him, those who mourn over their sin. Are you mourning over your sin? And as always, pray for wisdom and discernment as you grow each day in the knowledge and saving grace of Jesus Christ Yeshua. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it's absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it's impossible to have peace with Yahweh Elohim, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. You see, the Bible declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Because of Jesus Christ Yeshua and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He's also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He's willing to show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. But as it says in Romans 6.23, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no other way to come to God, folks. There's no other way to get salvation. You can't earn your salvation by good works. Fact is, Jesus Christ is the only way. Every other way, folks, leads to hell. There's no authentic way to the Father but Jesus Christ Yeshua. I'm so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, and shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins and the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin putting on the armor of God 
and growing into an intimate relationship with Him. It's the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get one and learn firsthand what God expects from you. Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived in high-quality streams on my website, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4, T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T.com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you'll find every broadcast dated and summarized for your convenience. Be sure to scroll all the way down on each page and click on the words Older Posts to be taken to more pages of archived shows. You can also find my shows broadcasted by the Fourth Watch Radio Network on Shoutcast, Spreaker, iTunes, or if you have an iPhone, iPad, or Android, you can download the Fourth Watch Radio Network app and enjoy easy streaming. For higher quality broadcasts, stay tuned in via fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network.